Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Get Up and Do Something Uplift podcast series. Today, we sit down with Dr. Frida Patterson. Dr. Patterson is a public health scientist and an associate professor of health behavior science at the University of Delaware. Today, she has published 75 peer-reviewed articles, several book chapters, and has presented at numerous national and international conferences. Dr. Patterson is an associate editor for the journals Sleep Health and BMC Public Health and serves as a reviewer for the American Heart Association and American Public Health Association. Hello, Dr. Patterson. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, Rianne. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. We're happy to have you here to talk about this topic. So just to begin, can you tell us a little bit about your research? Sure. So my background and training is in public health and uh, specifically in the area of nicotine dependence and smoking cessation. So I did my uh, postdoctoral work in that area uh, quite a long time now, time ago now. Um, And since then, though, my interests have really uh, departed or diverged from the field of tobacco control just because in that field, the end goal was always smoking cessation and how do we get people to quit? And my, I, I always had a, well, somewhat of an issue with that because, you know, we're ultimately trying to get people to quit so that we can lower their chances of disease like cancer, like heart disease. And those are multi etiological chronic conditions that have more than one cause. So of course, while tobacco is a major cause, um, there are more than it's there, there are more risk factors than just tobacco. So I really developed this interest in trying to understand how multiple risk factors interact together to synergize either in an additive or a multiplicative way to create disease. Um, and that's really where I started being very interested in sleep and really thinking about sleep as that upstream behavior um, or biological behavior, biobehavior really, um, that underpins everything. So my working hypothesis is very much that in the absence of healthy sleep, no other health behavior intervention can be fully optimized. So if we are not sleeping right, people are not going to be able to quit smoking or stay quit as they should. People are not going to be able to improve their levels of physical activity. They're not going to be able to uh, retain their adherence to dietary recommendations. So that's really been a central focus um, and working premise of, of what I've been doing for the last, I would say, five to six years. Wow. So it seems like sleep is a very important health behavior. Yeah. So sleep really has, to me, is is central um, and foundational to so many other things that are important. Yeah. And why do you think a lot of people put sleep aside and think it's not as important as you? Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, that's, so while I I'm very much data driven and sort of very epidemiologically focused in understanding uh, correlations and determinants of, of these relationships. You know, that's sort of a different question in terms of so why do why do we as a society not value sleep as a whole? Right. Um, and I think that that I would agree with that statement. Um, you know, I, I think. It's that idea that, uh, you know, we'll sleep when we're dead. 
And, um, you know, our society is very much, uh, you know, very much a 24-7, round-the-clock, um, you know, constant, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's just a, there's just a constancy where getting sleep is not prioritized. There's always something else. It's the first thing to go. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's um, some work out of the University of Arizona where they look at um, physical activity interventions. And one of the things that they found was that as people, uh, in this one case, this is only one study, but it's been replicated by a couple of studies. This one study where as people became more physically active, they slept less um, because they were giving up sleep to be active, right? And uh, the net gain, though, or the net effect was that their cardiovascular risk actually increased. Wow. Because, um, you know, because they weren't getting enough sleep. And uh, it's like, okay, so we, so that really speaks to um, how sleep is the first thing to go when people are in a crunch, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how, you know, there, there really is this effect. You know, we know that there is an independent relationship between sleep health. And I'm not talking about sleep disorders like sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, obstructive, yeah, obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia. I'm not talking about sleep disorders. I'm talking about sleep health, which is a different concept um, and talks about sleep duration, sleep timing, sleep efficiency, sleep latency, how these sleep metrics relate to cardiovascular disease. Wow. And there is an independent um, association with that. Wow, that's really interesting. And there was actually this trend I'm thinking about of how people thought that the more you slept, the less you succeed. That, like you said, sleep when you're when when you're when you're dead. Sleep when you're dead. Yes, yeah. and while you're sleeping, yeah. your the competition past is you. Yeah, exactly. So it has well, there is an element as well, though. So let me just give you a caveat. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there is this whole idea. Even the the National Sleep Foundation updated their recommendations because it used to be, okay, we all need to sleep more. We need to sleep more. But in actual fact, there is there's a U-shaped relationship, um, for example, with sleep duration and body mass index. So if you have too much sleep, um, that can be bad too, okay. right? So it's like, you know, too little sleep, too much sleep, those folks have higher body mass index. Oh, okay. Wow. So it's really, we're talking about adequate sleep. It's that bit in the middle. Um, where we're looking for folks, adults, to get seven to eight hours. If you get more than nine, your risk for disease and mortality goes up. If you get less than six, your risk for disease and mortality goes up. So you can actually get too much sleep as well. Okay. And some of my own data have shown that too. So what have what can you define good sleep as, healthy okay. sleep? So going back to that concept of healthy sleep, so... Um, there's a gentleman out of the University of Pittsburgh, Dan Bisey, who is a pretty awesome uh, researcher and person. And he really was the first, to my understanding, to, to really focus in on healthy sleep. That was something distinct, like I've mentioned, to sleep disorders. And he, I'm going to get this wrong, but he has this model, it's are you sated? And he, so the R is sleep regularity. Um, 
you know, asses. Uh, I don't know. But I, I can tell you what they are. I always really mess up this acronym. But they're sleep regularity. So the extent to which you go to bed and um, get out of bed at the same time. So that regularity. Um, sleep duration. Like I said, for adults, we want seven to eight hours every night. Sleep timing, which is a really poorly understood and really complex kettle of fish. And um, where we're getting into circadian rhythms and chronotype and thinking about, um, you know, at the very basic level, you're thinking about are you a morning person or an evening person? Are you an owl or a lark? Right. Mm -hmm. um, so we're evening type. So if you're somebody who prefers evening type, your risk of disease and poor health behaviors is increased um, as compared to a morning person. OK, so and actually my so that's one of the studies that I did. We showed an interaction between sleep duration and sleep timing where people who had short sleep duration and evening type had the highest risk of disease. Right. So think about that. Um, so where was I? So regularity, sleep, time, sleep duration, sleep timing. Um, we've also got sleep efficiency. So that is um, the percentage of time that you are in bed asleep. So that's another metric. Um, and there's another one that is escaping me right now, but I think that's enough to be going on with. So these are all um, um, metrics of healthy sleep. And while they're distinct, and independent, they are to some extent, you know, quite well related as well. Um, but that's that's how we define healthy sleep. But I think for the most part, you know, from a population health perspective, the go-to metric is sleep duration. Um, because some of the, the science around some of the others are not fully understood yet. Okay. And what age group do you think is most affected by poor sleep habits? Gosh, I think they all are. Um, you know, it's, you know, sleep across the life course um, has its own, uh, there's definitely there its own rhythms. There, there are different rhythms for different age groups. If you think about children, adolescents, you know, my soon-to-be 12-year-old daughter who was a 5.30 a.m. riser every day. Now I can't get her out of bed at like 10 o'clock, you know. <laughs> so there are those circadian changes that just happen um, across the life course um, and then, you know, into sort of young adult. And I guess I'm now considered middle age. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's some... Um, and then even older adults, you know, struggle with fragmented sleep and not... Um, you know, you, you need uh, a certain sleep duration in order to get um, this, the delta, the slow wave, you know, the deep sleep, which is restorative and, um, and sort of more helpful for cognition and, and different other functions. So I think every, so I think the short answer to your question is, is that every life course has its own challenges and, um, in terms of sleep. But I do think, though, that, you know, that the, the Bayesian sleep health model has implications for every age course and for every life course. Okay, so every age group has their own recommended amount of sleep. So every need. age group, yeah, every age group has their own. Well, so for very young children, um, you know, you're talking 
12, eight, you know, 12, 16, 18 hours. I mean, it's 18 wow. hours for infants, right? <laughs> Not that any of my infants ever slept that much, but I'm told that's <laughs> what they're supposed to get. <laughs> and then, you know, your, your adolescents, your teenagers, you're talking, you know, eight, 10 hours and then young adult, um, you know, then they get into the young adult, adult age where we need seven to eight hours for sure. Um, but yeah, but even within that sleep duration, you know, you want, and that's where the sleep regularity comes in because, you know, the, one of the questions is, you know, is two, three and a half hour bouts of sleep as, as good as one seven hour bout? And the answer may be no, because of the sleep rhythms and the different stages of sleep and the need to enter those different stages and the amount of time, sleep time needed to enter all of those stages. Um, so it's complex. Yes. So, yes, there are, there are different sleep duration uh, recommendations for early, for young kids, middle kids, and then adults. Um but I think every age group certainly has its challenges for sleep health. So digital media mm -hmm. is a big topic now as sure. far as affecting different health behaviors. Mm -hmm. How do you think it affects our sleep patterns? Well, light is a major factor for sleep behaviors and um, exposure to light um, that is one of the variables that helps uh, regulate our circadian systems and how our body knows when to wake and when to sleep. Um, so, so that's how melatonin is triggered, for example. So melatonin, your hormone that tells you when it's time to sleep. So that is triggered by fading light, right? And yeah. um, so when, when we're dealing with, you know, like smartphones, tablets at bedtime, which I do all the time myself, I have to say. But, uh, you know, the blue light coming from smartphones um, activates. It, it's stimulating. Okay, so it, it doesn't, it represses the production of melatonin. So that, that's, a, that's a mechanism through which screens and screen time can interfere with sleep-wake cycles, right? Um, but... You know, and when I tell this, so I have a sleep health intervention that I do for smoking cessation. And when I tell them, so, you know, I once had a client who was like, oh, but it's okay because I've got this filter on my smartphone. So it's only the yellow light. So I'm not being exposed to the blue light waves. It's the yellow light. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. But it's also, that's just one mechanism, you know, the exposure to the different types of light. And um, it's also the you know, the neural activation of the thinking and the processing and the cognition that goes on through reading and interacting, particularly if you're texting or conversing, you know, and I think that's one of the big issues. Um, I know for middle-aged kids, our middle school-aged children and, and, and high school-aged kids, I know that's one of the big concerns about social media and chatting is that it's interfering with their sleep. Um, which then interferes with their mood and their cognition, and, and it really can have some negative um, spiraling effects. So I think that, yeah, it's it's not really a good idea um, for healthy sleep, um, but, you know, I think 
there's everything in moderation. Do you think that individuals will benefit from the new features that our phones and computers have that change the color of the screen or is that only one aspect that's helping? So like I said, um, I think it's just one aspect. So I think that, um, so light is certainly one mechanism through which smartphones can um, influence sleep, but it's also depending on what they're doing. It's the activation, it's the engagement, it's the neurological response to being on the phone that's, that's awakening you know, mm-hmm. it's not just the light. So, and that's not something that can be dampened down necessarily like the way the light can. So, yeah, I think it's going to, it's, it's certainly a challenge. Yeah. So you talked about some ways that unhealthy sleep patterns can affect us physiologically. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways that it can affect us socially or even behaviorally? How mm-hmm. the choices we make? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so there's quite a lot of evidence um, out there to show that unhealthy sleep is related to impaired cognition. So attention span, executive functioning. Um, and this is something uh, that, for example, um, there's a national truck driver study where they're looking at sleep regulations for, you know, long, do- long distance truck drivers and um, you know, medical residents, for example. So um, there's quite a lot of evidence showing even even short-term sleep deprivation can have pretty major um, effects on cognition and uh, cognitive functioning. Um, so that's one um, pathway. And another one is through mood um, and how when we're sleep-deprived and we have poor sleep health, the feelings of negative mood and depressive symptoms uh, increase. Um, yeah, so the, I think those are two of the main the main pathways that I'm aware of. Um, and it also affects, um, ener- you know, just perceived energy level mm-hmm. and perceived wellness. I think that there's a lot of, um, so those are, you know, I think there's a lot of data to show how, um, just being sleep deprived just really can bring about feelings of lethargy and just not just low energy, you know. Yeah. So I think that can have a lot of implications for, you know, family functioning, social functioning, you know, personal well-being, especially across time. You know? Do you think that shift workers, so people that work overnight, mm-hmm. can get healthy sleep is that possible for them that's a really to... great question you know that's a really great question so um and that's actually something dr siminski and i have been batting around a little bit um so shift workers actually are really they have really poor health outcomes it's really wow. a major risk factor for poor health like they at very young ages you know, so Dr. Siminski and I did a study on firefighters, on a sample of firefighters, where we looked at sleep. And so they're all shift workers. And um, we looked at their sleep duration and perceived, like, perceptions of getting enough sleep. And the American Heart Association has this composite heart score. 
um, which is, you know, a seven factor score for, it's an indicator for how good their cardiovascular health was. And all of those firefighters felt that they were healthy. They all like reported, yeah, like their mean age was like low, like mid thirties. And they all thought they were so healthy and so well. We looked at their heart scores. They had some of the worst heart scores and the worst sleep at, at like, like the mean, as I'm saying, the mean age was like high 30s. So they had a heart score that you'd see more typically in people aged 50 and 60. But they felt that they were perfectly fine. Their perceived health was good. They thought because they were firefighters and they were physically active, doing and and they really, um, they really were not. Most of them were overweight, if not obese. Most of them smoked. Most of them had high blood pressure. You know, it was really shocking. So, um, so your point, are shift workers at risk? They most certainly are. Um, but can shift workers get healthy sleep? I think that is, that's actually um, a cutting edge question right now. Um, because we need shift workers. Like that's just the way our world is. We need our hospital people, you know, our doctors, our nurses, our firefighters. We need those people. So it's trying to figure out how can we structure their rest, rest wake times so that it is less damaging to their health. And that's an open question. Okay. That really is, um, and that is something that um, that that that's that's something that has yet to be figured out. But it's really important, and I think it's going to have, you know, it's it's all about the circadian rhythm, and you know, having it's about circadian alignment. So you know, we are all programmed to be awake in daylight and to be asleep at nighttime. I mean, that is our circadian rhythm. I mean, there may be a little bit of shifting in terms of morning, evening type, but by and large, we are fairly much biologically programmed to be anchored into that rhythm. Um, so when we take people so far out of that rhythm, how, you know, is there a limit on how many days that that can be done? Is there a way that we can arrange their sleeping time so that their sleep quality is better during the day because that's oftentimes what they complain about is I cannot sleep when it's daylight it's that quality they're not getting that quality of sleep so is there something we can do for them to improve their quality of sleep during the day I don't know because it's yeah. hard like the rest of the world is up and moving and they are not yeah you know so I think that's a really interesting question Yes. Next research topic. And what about young adults um, and our college-age students? What yeah. trends do you see with their... What challenges? Yeah, and any trends that you see oh, with their trends, sleep? Sorry. Um, well, I think, you know, they don't get enough, pretty much, yeah. off the bat. Um, so I think, you know, I don't know what the data show. I know that there are in general, the data show that our sleep duration is getting shorter. Um, but in terms of young adults, I think um, it's the sleep timing 
So not going to bed so late and the sleep regularity. Because there's another thing, right, called social jet lag, which is where, you know, during the week, you're burning the candle at both ends. You know, you're going to bed after midnight, 12, 1, 2, you're up, I don't know, for morning practice or morning class or whatever. So you go to bed at, let's say, 1, and you're up at, let's say, Eight. Let's be generous. So that's like seven hours of sleep, right? Yeah. For young adults, they probably need more eight, nine hours. So, you know, maybe you go out a couple of nights. So whatever, like during the week. So you're you're definitely short sleep during the week. And then at the weekends, you sleep in. Okay. So that difference between your mean sleep duration during the week and your mean sleep duration during the weekend, that catch up, that difference, we call that social jet lag. Right. And the greater magnitude of social jet lag is related to risk for cardiovascular disease. So that's where sleep regularity comes in. Okay, so you need to be going to bed and getting up at the same time so that we can minimize that social jet lag and keep our circadian rhythms and everything fairly, you know, homeostatic and fairly steady. Um, So I see that as being a challenge for young adults and the sleep regularity and um, trying to minimize the social jet lag. I think that's really important because uh, I see a lot of students that think, oh, I have the weekend too. Yeah, I'll catch it up at the weekend. I'll catch up on the weekend. Yeah. And actually, that was something that was sort of, and even to some extent still is endorsed. You know, catch up sleep is good. Getting, you know, you catch up on your sleep. Yeah, you go have a couple of days where you're behind and you catch up. So I think... It's like everything in the sleep field. It's still a little um, nebulous. But we, we definitely know that social jet lag, the magnitude of social jet lag relates to risk for disease. And I think the longer, it, you know, it's like anything, the greater exposure you have, the longer time that you have that discrepancy, the greater your risk. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, um, so yeah, I would see that as being a challenge. Okay. We have a lot of great information that we've got today. (laughs) I've learned a lot. (laughs) Um, Do you have any takeaways for our listeners to keep in mind about positive sleep habits? Positive sleep habits? Um, You know, I'm sort of a moderate when it comes to all sort of healthy habits, maybe to the detriment, but um, (laughs) I sort of feel like if you do the right thing, eight tenths of the time, it'll be all right. Um, Because, you know, we all are human and the world has to go on. Um, So I think that, you know, it it all depends on priorities. You know, if you are somebody who is trying to change another health behavior, I would say you most certainly need your sleep. Because that sleep is going to help you make better choices. It's going to improve your cognition. It's going to improve your mood. It's it's what I would call in my counseling session is putting the eggs in the right basket. You know, it is setting yourself up for success. And um, and sure, there's going to be times where that's not possible, but you do you know you do what you can. Yeah, and just. Try to make it a priority. Yeah. It is important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you will succeed if you yeah. sleep. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you'll do a little better. Yes. That's what I think. Yeah. You'll definitely do a little bit better. Well, thank you so much, of Dr. Course. Patterson, for coming in today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uplift podcast series. Come back again soon to getupanddosomething.org for more Uplift podcasts. We'll be covering many new and exciting topics with the experts to help you improve your health and well-being.